I have five theses this morning that I can fit into these next uh, 35 minutes, I think, concerning the pursuit of Pauline missionaries. I'll explain before I'm done what I mean about Pauline missionaries. The first three of these theses are familiar theological foundations at Bethlehem, so I will go quickly through them. The last couple are very practical, and uh, we'll dwell on those more specifically and longer. The first thesis is the purpose of God to fill the earth with his glory will be accomplished. That's as certain as is the life of God. God will die before that fails to be accomplished. I learned that from Numbers 14.21. As I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and have not hearkened to my voice shall see the land. He takes two oaths. As I live, I'll die before this happens. And as the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. He means for these people not to enter the land. And he swears they won't enter. And he takes his oath on two grounds. His life and his purpose to fill the earth with his glory. That's important to see. It will be accomplished. What does it mean, however, to fill the earth with his glory? Three things. One, it means everybody in the world will one day, or to put it more accurate theologically, one day the earth will only be peopled by people who know his glory. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But not just knowledge, that's not enough for God's plan to be fulfilled. Worship, there must be worshipers filling the world. Psalm 22:27 All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. So one day the earth will not only be filled with the glory that is the knowledge but also the worship of the glory of the Lord. But that's not enough either to explain what he means. It has to be a certain kind of worship, namely white hot worship. Revelation 3:16 so because you are lukewarm and are neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. So the people who are not spewed out of his mouth are the people that will inhabit the earth in the age to come. And therefore, it's only going to be people who are hot for God. That's why at Bethlehem we do our best to rehearse for that day. We intend to be intense. And if you don't want to be intense, take off. Because you don't want to be in the kingdom. There will only be people in the kingdom who are white hot for God. If you intend to be lukewarm, forget it. You're out already. We want to be hot for God. People ask, why, you know, why is this so intense at Bethlehem? It's because of this verse. This is a scary verse. Isn't it? It's an awful thing to be spit out of Jesus' mouth. Therefore, God's purpose to fill the earth with His glory 
is his purpose to fill the earth with people who know, worship his glory with white-hot intensity, and this will be accomplished. All that you know. We talk about that a lot. Second, this you know as well. God blesses his people that they might be a blessing to all the nations. The only reason anybody in this room is alive, has health, has a roof over your heads, has faith in your hearts, has intelligence in your brains, has affections in your emotions, the only reason is to share it and thus multiply the worship that God gets. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. And then he says it again in different words. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse, and by you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Same thing in Psalm 67, 1 and 2 and 7. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. All so self-centered, right? Wrong. That thy way may be known upon the earth, thy saving power among all the nations. We ought to pray, bless me. For one reason. To multiply the worship that we feel towards the Lord. Third. Through His people. God intends to gather a worshiping multitude from all the peoples of the earth. Now the word to underline in this thesis is peoples. Because what I want to do is is just share with you what most of you already know and what I took 35 years to learn. Namely, that in the Great Commission, when it says, go and make disciples of all the nations, it does not mean political nations like we know them today, the 220-odd political states that exist in the world today. That wasn't in Jesus' mind. And there's some reasons we know it wasn't. For example, back to that text in Genesis 12:3, by you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And if you take that Hebrew word, mishpahot, families, and just open your concordance, you find it in 10, 5, 18, 20, 31, 32, in the lists of the tribes and families and nations. And then if you come to the end of the Bible and you read in Revelation 7, 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude which no man could number from every nation, tribes, peoples, tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. Well, you you immediately realize that the purpose of God to expand His kingdom through the earth is not completed when a foothold for the gospel has uh, been obtained in every political nation. It's not over yet. Because, you see, these words, nation, tribes, peoples, tongues... Nobody quite knows what those are exactly. 
Nobody can give a rigid definition that separates a tongue from a people, from a tribe, from a nation. But we don't need that kind of a definition either to know what he's up to, do we? He means all the little cultural groups out there that are characterized by languages. That would be a clear one here from tongues. And so there are four or five thousand of those left to be reached. And then uh, tribes and families. And that doesn't mean Noel and me and Carson, Abraham, Benjamin and Barnabas. That means clans probably in, in that culture of a fairly extended family of several hundred people or so. Any place in the world where there's a cluster of people cut off from the gospel and having some kind of unifying factor, God means for that people to be reached and penetrated and discipled. So this third point is, through his people, God intends to gather a worshiping multitude from all the peoples of the earth. Now, that raises a question about how that's going to happen. Number four, God intends for Pauline missionaries to plant the church in all unreached peoples. So now I'm ready to define for you what I mean by Pauline missionaries. And I get it from this text. And those of you who were Bethel on Thursday heard me Thursday a week ago, heard me preach on this text. This is Paul's statement to the people in Rome about his missionary strategy. From Jerusalem and as far round as Illyricum, I have fully preached, now that literally in the Greek is, I have fulfilled the gospel of Christ, thus making it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on another man's foundation. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, that's where the regions beyond missionary union gets its name, no longer any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Now, what is a Pauline missionary? A Pauline missionary is a person who can make an extraordinarily brash statement about the world in which he has been serving for 20 years. I assume Paul was converted around 35 A.D., give or take a year, and that he wrote this letter in 55 A.D. 20 years he's been ministering, and you all know this is, uh, this is the Mediterranean world, believe it or not. And a little, little heel of Italy over here. There's Jerusalem. Got it? Okay. Egypt down here. There's Egypt. Okay, and here's uh, Troas, and here's uh, Ephesus, and here's Athens and Corinth, and uh, here's Illyricum. You talk about Illyricum? From Jerusalem all the way around through Judea, Samaria, Syria, Cilicia, Asia, Macedonia, Achaia, to Illyricum, I am finished. I have no place to work anymore. Only Pauline missionaries can say that. Timothy can't say that. So I'm going to distinguish Pauline missionaries and Timothy missionaries. My cry is for some Pauline missionaries. 
And the world is in desperate need of Pauline missionaries who look around and say, I'm getting out of here. There's too many Christians around here. I have no place to work in Minneapolis. 800 churches in Minneapolis and fewer than 800 missionaries to 1.9 billion unreached people. Somebody in this church ought to say, that tradition has to be continued in our day. And yet, we just have so many Timothy missionaries, because Timothy missionaries are, it's, it's easier to be a Timothy missionary than to be a Pauline missionary, as important as they are. So, God intends for Pauline missionaries to plant the church in all unreached peoples to continue this tradition. I'm going to Spain. Nobody's ever been to Spain with the gospel. I'm going to go. Just, you can just, I, I just imagine him getting on boats. It says in Second uh, Corinthians 11 that he was shipwrecked three times and spent a day and night in the water. Now, you've got to take a lot of boat rides to get shipwrecked three times. So I assume he spent a lot of time traveling from coastal town to coastal town on boats. What do you think he talked to the sailors about? The weather? Paul? You know what he said? He said to every sailor he met, or ship captain, have you ever been to Spain? Or how far west have you ever been? Tell me about it. Did you ever meet any Jews there? Is there a synagogue in a port city in Spain? How long does it take to get there? What's the weather like? What would I have to take? That's what he talked about on the boat. And he said probably, what's, outside, what's beyond Spain? If you, if you go around Spain, what do you... And they said, nobody knows. They probably thought it was the end of the world. Some of you ought to be Pauline missionaries. Five, now we get down to some specific numbers and challenges here. The need is staggering. The task is possible with God. You know where that comes from in Mark 10. It says, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom and the disciples just kind of stagger back and say, well then who, who can enter? And Jesus said, uh, with man it, it, is, it is impossible. But not with God. And, and the task of missions is impossible, but not with God. So let me just give you these figures that I get from this book. The Unfinished Task, edited by uh, John Kyle and uh, published back in last year or year before, 1984. I got these figures from Ralph Winter in that book. For some of you, this is an old hat. For some of you, you need to think real hard now for the next five minutes to try to get a handle on these, this new way of looking at the world. First of all, I have two headings here. A 7,000 reached peoples. That word is probably new for some of you. Put an S on the end of people. You don't usually do that. 17,000 unreached peoples. So in the world, there are about 24,000 peoples. Now, Ralph Winter wrote an article last year in the International Journal for Frontier Missions in which he said, I'm shifting from talking about 16,750 unreached peoples to 17,000 because I want these three zeros to shout loud and clear, these are guesses. These are estimates. 
educated guesses. Nobody knows what a hidden people is anyway. That is, nobody knows how to draw a precise circle around it and say they're inside, not outside. There's no nice, clear-cut, clean definitions for an unreached people. You can give sort of general characteristics, but nobody knows. And then beside that, nobody knows quite how many there are. In, in India, for example, Ralph Winter estimates 3,000. David Barrett says 26,000. So nobody knows quite uh, how many peoples there are. So the zeros should signal for you these are guesses. Now, don't say, oh, then, you know, missiology is just a hocus-pocus science. You really can't do anything definite. William Carey was a nascent missiologist, and you should read in the inquiry concerning the obligations of Christians to use means to reach the heathens, you should read in there his tables of the world. Good night. He didn't know what he was talking about. He has numbers and populations and unreached groups, and he didn't know anything. It was enough, though, to change the world. It was enough to change the world. All he needed was estimates to see that the need was enormous. So don't, you know, don't be picky and say, oh, we don't know exactly, so uh, we don't, can't do anything. We know enough. 7,000 reached peoples and 17,000 unreached. Now, within these 7,000 reached peoples, there are 1.7 billion non-Christians, even though they're reached. You know, get that. Reached means the church has been successfully planted. It is alive. It is able to carry on the Timothy-type ministry of winning souls in its own culture. Among the 17,000 unreached peoples, there are 2.5 billion non-Christians. Among these 7,000 reached peoples, there are 245 million true Christians. And among the 17,000 unreached peoples, there are a million Christians. So don't let that throw you either. Unreached doesn't mean no sprinkling of Christians. It just means those Christians scattered through those 17,000 groups aren't gathered together into viable evangelizing churches that can do the work without cross-cultural help. Okay? So don't let that look like a contradiction to you. Then these next figures are simply arrived at by another sort of estimation. You can see what happens between those two numbers. It's divided by 100, right? So 245 million true Christians in the world divided by 100 gives you 2.45 million established congregations. That's just an estimate figuring that there are about 100 people in each congregation average around the world. Here there are none of those. It is none of those viable, ongoing, uh, self-sustaining, evangelizing, indigenous churches. Nevertheless, 73,000, and I should have had Protestant up here. I checked that last night because that number didn't sound quite right to me. It's Protestant missionary. 73,000 Protestant missionaries serving in these 7,000 reached peoples. 90% Timothy-type missionaries. 8,000 missionaries, Protestants, serving among these 17,000 unreached peoples, 10% Pauline missionaries. And Ralph Winter says, what an imbalance. Not that these people shouldn't be there. Not that the Locklers should come home. Especially after what Noemi just said. But that we should not only think in terms of helping the Brazilian church. And I would hope and I'm sure they would agree with this, that part of our BGC strategy in Brazil should be to equip and mobilize that church to reach its hidden peoples. 
in Brazil. They're there. They're there in Sao Paulo, I'm sure. Those clusters of people, you don't have to go to a hidden country to find a hidden people. So that's number five. The need is staggering and the task is possible. Now, how is it possible? What can we do? What is our part in completing the task of reaching 17,000 unreached people groups? And let me put in a parenthesis here. I gave this talk to Dana Olson's church in Trinity when he was ordained last June. And the title I gave to it was How My Mind Has Changed. And right at this point, I'll explain to you why I titled it that at the beginning. I grew up thinking only in terms of winning individuals when I thought of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And I thought, well, it was very frustrating. You know, when you start to think about it, as a college student, you want to, what are you going to do with your life? Well, I want to be a part of the Great Commission. And then you, you just get so oppressed by the impossibility of it. And in fact, it will not happen if that's the way you conceive of it. If you conceive of the Great Commission as only being completed when all individuals are one to Christ, it's hopeless because the Bible holds out no such hope. Will he find faith on earth when he comes? The nations will mourn when he comes. He will pour out fire and wrath upon the unbelievers when he comes. They won't, we're not going to win all, of, all the people to the Lord. So you, you just sort of get oppressed that oh, if that's what the Great Commission means, then we're never going to finish the job. Well, here's how my mind has changed it. That's not what the Great Commission is. At least not the first half of it that must be completed before Jesus comes. When Jesus says, this gospel must first be preached in all the world for a testimony to all the nations, then the end will come. That's what's got to happen. All the nations, all the people groups have to be evangelized, have to be reached with the gospel and a church planted there. Now... It's so hopeful and exciting to think about finishing it in our generation before I die. Finishing it. Here's how we do our part. Assuming an average congregational size of 100 worldwide, there are 150 congregations for every unreached people. You take... uh, 2.45 million congregations. Divide that by 17,000. I just checked this before service. I think you come up with 144 point something. And you round it off. We round it off to deal with round numbers. 150 congregations in the world for every hidden people. Snap. It's a snap. Numerically, it's a snap. Spiritually is another question. The BGC has about 140,000 members in the U.S. Another 35,000 or so outside the U.S. Therefore, using the average world size of 100 people per congregation, we would have 1,400 congregations average. We don't. We have about 800 because our average is larger. But let's keep it fair. And so we bear our fair share of the load and say we've got Bethlehem is nine congregations okay 1400 congregations now that means that the fair responsibility of the BGC numerically 
is to reach about 10 unreached peoples. 1,400 congregations divided by 150 congregations per hidden people. Only 10 new peoples to enter in our generation. And we've done our fair share. Now, I qualify immediately because I don't think that's right. I said numerically that's right. Uh, materially and spiritually that's not right because we are a rich church in America, a very rich church, and uh, many of these 2.45 million congregations are poor congregations who are not yet in a position to do the kind of mission that needs to be done, and therefore we should take more than 10. But as soon as I said that last night, somebody... I don't think he's here. He raised his hand. He said, well, be careful about this, talking about the poor congregations not doing missions. And then he reminded us what we've heard before, namely that there's, and I forget it, the, the, uh, something, the, something prayer band in India. There are about 80,000 Christians, and I think they have uh, 80 missionaries or something, or maybe 800, some spectacular number. And they're broke. They're just poor people. So I'll go back and just retract that statement maybe and go back where I was at the beginning and say the fair share is ten. But I think we should take more. But here's my point. In spite of the fact that these are all guesses and round numbers, do you see that it's hopeful? That it's not, it's not paralyzing? 17,000 is not a big number, worldwide speaking with the number of Christians there are in the world, if we just were burdened like we ought to be burdened? So what must we then do? We must pray concertedly for an awakening and a frontier mentality and movement. And I'm already looking forward to Prayer Week 1986. It's always a great time at Bethlehem. It's an exhausting time. Because we really pray, and many of us fast earnestly, that our church would be awakened and, and that the conference would be awakened and that the world church would be stirred. Look forward to that. Begin to pray every day for prayer week, 86. It will be the first full week in January. The text is going to be, or the theme is going to be, Romans 10, 1. My heart's desire... And prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And so the first Sunday, we'll talk about heart's desire. And the second Sunday, prayer to God that they may be saved. To focus on God, to burden our hearts to desire like Paul desired, and to pray like Paul prayed that people might be saved. Pray concertedly for an awakening and a frontier mentality and movement. Second, study and strive to become congregations, and here I'm thinking wider than our church, of world Christians. And I don't mean everybody in this room missionaries. And I think it emasculates the word if you say we're all missionaries. Baloney. We're not all missionaries. If you start talking like that, you'll never believe in Pauline missionaries. A missionary is somebody who crosses a culture, gets outside the saturation of Christians, and is pressing, pressing out to the Spains of the world. 
But all of us should be world Christians whose lives are ordered around the priority of God's purpose to be glorified by white-hot worshipers from all the peoples. Whatever your profession, however you make your money and work from eight to six each day, you still can be a world Christian with your mindset and your mentality structured around this purpose for being alive. Study is the first word there, so let me hold up some books. I, I wish every family would buy this book and read it. From Jerusalem to Erinjali. This is 90 little biographies. It makes the best husband, wife, or family reading if your kids are a little bit older than teeny. Uh, it is so good. It's just so inspiring to read missionary biography. And this is such a grand collection. Buy this book. And then pray with your spouse and say, shouldn't we be taking 15 minutes, maybe one night or two nights or three or four or five nights a week to read together and pray just to see what God might do in our family? Or this be one of the most up-to-date surveys of what's happening in missions on the crest of the wave by Peter Wagner. Just so good and so simply written that, that you can hardly put it down. And then, if you want to keep up on a regular basis, Pulse, every week it comes, and this week, just what's going on in the world, an all-out effort made to reach one million in Manila. So I was able to put our conference efforts in this broader effort of Manila 85. Every month, World Christian Magazine. This has spectacular photography, and it, it's of the quality of... Reader's Digest. No, I didn't mean Reader's Digest. <laughs> National Geographic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what, what would I have done if you hadn't tittered? <laughs> that would have been wrong. This magazine, this would be just great to get. Then if you're more serious, uh, Evangelical Missions Quarterly, every quarter, and the International Journal for Frontier Missions. These are the four things that I sort of poke around in as they, as they come. Oh, yes, the unfinished task. That Now, let's see. develop a mission board strategy. I want to quote from this on one of these. Develop a mission board strategy for new fields. I mean by that, our board at Bethlehem and the BGC board, to think new fields. There are couples sitting here now and single people who within the next five years are dreaming serious dreams. Faith and David Yeager will be home in October. They're going to be looking for a team to go to Guinea. Guinea's been closed for 20 years under a dictator. It was opened last year. There's only one mission there. At least nine clear, big tribes, unreached. Faith and David are dreaming. Who's going to go with them in 87? Recruit Pauline missionaries. We need a whole new mentality of how to get missionaries, I think, because we just sit around and wait for them to show up on our doorstep instead of going out to get them. This is a great essay by Elizabeth Elliot in here on uh, the reflections on the death of five missionaries. You know who they were, Jim Elliot and, and the fellas. Ed McCulley had become a very close friend of Jim's at Wheaton, but Jim was endlessly needling him. He would say things like, Well, brother, how come you're not going to the mission field? Ed would say, well, I don't believe God's called me to the mission field. I'm going to be a politician. In fact, he tells the story how they used to drive down to Chicago. Ed McCulley would be riding on the back of the convertible and, convertible and, and Jim Elliott would be sitting in the front. And they'd stop at a stoplight. Ed, Ed McCulley jump out and run around saying, vote for Elliott, vote for Elliott. 
and then jump back in the car. Just the kind of man he was. No politics, just felt like doing it. After Ed graduated, he enrolled in law school and took a job as a night clerk in a hotel in order to spend some of his time studying. Jim visited him there and said, Brother, why aren't you spending half your time during these long night hours reading the Bible? So Ed began to do that. In a sense, Jim Elliott called Ed McCulley to be a missionary. Ed ended up in the jungle. Jim was hoping that Ed and he would be sent out together. The Lord sent uh, people out two by two, so Jim had been praying for a long time for someone to go along. He was quite convinced that it was not to be a wife, not at least until he had spent some time in the jungle. So he prayed for a buddy. Then Ed disappointed him by getting married. So Jim prayed for another partner. He knew a man in Seattle who had a master's degree in literature from the University of Washington and was headed for a teaching career. His name was Pete Fleming. Jim went to visit him and said, how come you're not going to the mission field? (laughs) Pete was called to missions and died. At Jim Elliott's side. That's the way to get missionaries. Not just sit around and wait. Eyeball the people you know are gifted and say to them, why aren't you going to be a missionary? Look at these statistics. How are you going to stay home? We ought to recruit. Good night. IBM and control data and all the biggies around here. What do they do? Sit and wait for college graduates to kind of show up and apply? They go to all the universities and say, show us your best people. And then they screen them. And then they get them. Finally, restructure the funding procedure so that any missionary who is called and qualified and can raise support can go. Well, that's a big one. I think we need to do some big changes in the way the BGC supports missionaries so that If there were ten young people or couples in this congregation who said, we'll band together, form the Bethlehem Coalition, and reach all ten of those without anybody else. We will raise our support. Will the BGC send us? The BGC ought to say, we sure will if you're qualified and called. Instead of saying, well, you're not in the budget. We've got to somehow open the budget so that people who are called and qualified can go. And that's what Barberg's proposal was all about last June at the conference. And it was tabled to my dismay, but perhaps on that table we'll be blessed of God. And who knows, maybe those ten unreached people will be reached.